0: Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law. I'm D.K. Williams and this is episode 50. We are halfway to 100 and we're going to talk about Ray versus Blair. This is a 1952 United States Supreme Court case dealing with the Electoral College. Again, I know I did not plan on doing it this way. And this is the third in a series of three episodes now. There won't be another one in the foreseeable future dealing with the Electoral College. Now, ever since the 10th Circuit ruled that Colorado statute requiring presidential electors to vote for the winner of the state's popular vote was ruled unconstitutional by the Tenth Circuit. I've been following this story because this could seriously have a massive impact on the future of this country. And I'm not I'm really not over exaggerating here. And I've got a worst case scenario that could potentially play out. And after we talk about this case, I'll I'll mention this. This could conceivably happen. Now, is it likely? No, but could it happen? Absolutely. And so resolving this electoral college issue is going to be a major thing to happen, hopefully before November 2020, when the next presidential election takes place. So the Baca case, that was the Tenth Circuit one that we talked about in episode 48. In conjunction with the case out of Washington, which we talked about last week, Guerra versus Washington, this really sets up a major potential decision from the United States Supreme Court because the Guerra case and the Baca case are diametrically opposed to one another. And they both rely on this U.S. Supreme Court case that we're going to talk about, Ray versus Blair, from 1952. So let's discuss that case and how they, these two different courts, both analyzed it and came out to opposite conclusions. I guess 50 episodes is a milestone of sorts. So the very first podcast of the law was published August 30th, 2018, where I discussed an issue in the news at the time, and that's government prosecutors giving witnesses time off of a potential jail sentence in exchange for testimony, but not allowing you and me to offer, quote, anything of value, that's what's in the statute, to do the same. Because when we do it, it's a bribe. When the government does it, the government doesn't care. The government bribery statute does not apply to the government. I mean, the the language does, but the Supreme Court has said, no, it doesn't. And actually it was a, a circuit court of appeals case, but the Supreme Court did not hear it. So that was a pretty good one, I think, to kick off the entire series. It was in the news at the time, and I think it's a major incorrect decision that separates how the government is treated from the rest of us. A couple of my other favorites here in the first 50, the second one, episode two, was about Citizens United. Episode five, Rickard v. Filburn, with the Supreme Court said that the constitutional authority for Congress to regulate interstate commerce also gives Congress the authority to regulate things that aren't commerce and aren't interstate. It's probably the worst decision that hasn't yet been overturned by the Supreme Court, and I don't see any potential for it to be overturned in the near future. Episode 10, we talked about Fleming versus Nestor where the Supreme Court explained why social security has been a lie and a fraud since day one, and your money was gone forever the second it was deducted from your paycheck. Supreme Court explains it to you. Check out episode 10. Episode 33, Jacob Ellis versus Ohio, is about obscenity and the First Amendment. Potter Stewart, the Supreme Court justice, that's where you hear the phrase, he knows it when I, he sees it, I know it when I see it. That was Potter Stewart talking about obscenity and what's protected under the Constitution and what's not. And he said that Louis Malle, the French director Louis Malle's movie, The Lovers, was not obscene. And there's been a lot more, but some of those come to mind. So check them out. All the archives will eventually be up here on speakeasyideas.com slash the law. We're just waiting on someone, that'd be me, to update some of the notes. As always, The Law with DK Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and the other Speakeasy Ideas podcast through your favorite podcast app. Just search for Speakeasy Ideas in that and go to the website itself speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at The Law, D-K-W, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. I'd love to hear from you, and if you're so inclined, you know the whole spiel here. Check out the Facebook page, like it, review it, comment, subscribe, share, etc., etc. And I'm available for speaking engagements, media appearances, consulting, teaching, whatever you want to do. Uh, contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. All right. So, who are these people in Ray versus Blair? This U.S. Supreme Court case that both Baca and Guerra dis- discuss, and they both both discuss in the past couple of months. All right. Ray versus Blair. Ben F. Ray was the chairman of the Alabama Executive Committee of the Democratic Party. He had the responsibility of actually like certifying the elector candidates for Alabama state Democratic primaries. Ray refused to certify the other guy in this case. Edmund Blair refused to certify him as an elector because, while Blair was otherwise qualified to be a presidential elector for the Democratic Party of the state of Alabama back in 1952, in all regards except, Mr. Blair refused to take a pledge that promised, among other things, that he would, quote, support the nominees of the National Convention of the Democratic Party for President and Vice President of the United States. So that was a Democratic Party rule in Alabama that he refused to do. And he said, hey, you can't make me do that. You can't make me make that pledge because the Constitution doesn't allow for that pledge. So therefore, I don't have to make it. I can still be an elector and I can vote for whoever I want. So that's what we got. Those who we are. Those are our players in this one. Now, the Supreme Court said that the U.S. Supreme Court here said that the Alabama Democratic Party can require that pledge, but they do not talk about whether or not that pledge is actually enforceable. And we'll get into the details of how they get to that conclusion. But that is a crucial distinction, one that the Tenth Circuit recognizes in Baca and the Washington Supreme Court makes the mistake of equating allowing the requirement of a pledge with mandating a vote that can be enforced if one fails to do so. It's a leap that's just not there. So the U.S. Supreme Court tally in this one was five to two. You might say, Dave, that's only seven You are correct. Two U.S. Supreme Court justices, for different reasons, were not involved. I think one of them was sick, and I'm not sure about the other one. But you've got five to two in favor of the Alabama Democratic Party, saying that they can require their presidential electors who want to be Democratic electors. They can be required for this pledge. Two said no, and two weren't involved. The two dissentors are absolutely correct, and we'll get into that. But Stanley Reed was the Supreme Court justice who wrote the opinion for the majority, the five. Reed was appointed by FDR to the Supreme Court in 1938. He stayed there until 1957, almost 20 years, when he retired. And he lived another 23 years after that and died at age 95. He lived a long time. Also in the majority, Chief Justice Frederick Vinson. He was nominated by Truman in 46 until his death about seven years later in 53 at the age of 63. Also in the majority, Harold Burton. This guy was also a Truman nominee in 45. He retired in 58, about 13 years later. He lived another six years and passed away at 76. I mention that because it seems like recently, justices haven't been retiring. They die in office. But back here, these guys were like, hey, okay, I'm done. And then they live a long time, many years after that. The fourth justice in the majority of this was Tom Clark, also nominated by Truman. He was appointed in 49. He retired in 67, lived about another 10 years, and died at the age of 77. The fifth justice in the majority was Sherman Minton. The fourth justice here in the top five in this majority also nominated by Truman. He was nominated in 49, he retired in 1956, and he died at the age of 74. So the dissent, the guy who gets it right, has got a great quote, which we will definitely get into, was written by Robert Jackson, nominated by FDR in 41. And he stayed on the court until he died in 1954 at the age of 62. William O. Douglas also joined in Jackson's descent. Another FDR appointment, nominated in 1939. He retired in 1975. He was on there for about 36 years. Then he lived for five more years and died at the age of 81. So, again, another old guy who retired and kept living. Then the two guys who did not participate were Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter. Black, nominated by FDR in 1937. He retired in 1971, so again, over three decades. I mean, kind of a sad but interesting fact is that he retired because he was sick, and he died one week later after his retirement. Justice Frankfurter, who's not in any way related to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, to my knowledge, nominated by FDR in 1939. He retired in 1962, lived another three years And died at the age of 82 so that's what you got five two and two so how did the majority get there what's the legal analysis and again it's important to point out this case does not directly answer the question can states require presidential electors to vote a certain way specifically can the states require its presidential electors as outlined in the u.s constitution can the states require them to vote for whichever candidate wins that state's popular vote now this case doesn't answer that question because it's not before it but it comes closest to answering it of any recent supreme court case and remember this was in 52 it's not like it's a new case and both the baca court the 10th circuit and the Garrett court the washington state supreme court use this case this u.s supreme court case ray versus blair in their opinions and if you listen to the last two eps 48 episodes 48 and 49 you know I side with the Tenth Circuit's opinion and how it interpreted this Ray case and how I believe the Washington State Supreme Court got it completely wrong. I mean, one's right and one's wrong. They're opposite of each other. And I think the dissent in Ray versus Blair got it more right, but even applying what the majority says here, the Tenth Circuit, Bacca is correct. So this is how I summarize the conclusion here of Ray. States have the absolute constitutional authority to select its presidential electors but they've got no authority to direct them. They cannot tell them what to do. Or even shorter, rhyming Johnny Cochran style, states can select them, but they can't direct them. The U.S. Supreme Court here overturned an Alabama state Supreme Court case, which said that this pledge requirement was unconstitutional and that Blair, the guy who wanted to run for elector, could not be required to make that pledge in order to be an elector for the Alabama Democratic Party. The U.S. Supreme Court in this case here in talking about what the Alabama State Supreme Court did, says, Respondent Blair was admittedly qualified as a candidate, except that he refused to include the following quoted words in the pledge required of the party candidates, a pledge to aid and support the, quote, nominees of the National Convention of the Democratic Party for President and Vice President of the United States. So then the state chairman of the, of the Democratic Party, Ray, refused to certify Blair based on that omission. And there's the conflict right there. Not that difficult. Pretty straightforward. The Supreme Court gets into its analysis and says, as is well known, political parties in the modern sense were not born with a republic. They were created by necessity. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. What? They were cre- political parties were created by necessity? No, they were not created by necessity. What kind of nonsense is that? They were created for expedience. Parties were eventually, they have eventually evolved into political machines that control the process. That's more accurate. There's a reason the founders opposed parties, why George Washington in his farewell address warned about them and said, let's not do do that. So Washington didn't oppose political parties because they were necessary. It doesn't even make any sense. He opposed them because they were the death of principle. The ideas became subservient to party membership. Ideas and principles are nigh on irrelevant principles no longer matter. Only the letter after the name of the candidate matters. Can you imagine, for instance, think of this, ballots with no party affiliation listed. If voters had to actually know something about the candidates without knowing their party affiliation, they had to like research and learn something and know what people's principles were and not just the letter after their name. I submit that would be a good thing. I slightly digress, but the Supreme Court statement that political parties were created by necessity, is absurd. They are created by expedience. Then the court, U.S. Supreme Court, gets into discussing these pledges made by political parties or the pledges that are required, in this case, by a political party. The Supreme Court says, Various tests of party allegiance for candidates in direct primaries are found in a number of states. The requirement of a pledge from the candidate participating in primaries to support the nominee is not unusual. Okay, that's certainly true. But what happens if the primary loser who says, okay, I'll pledge to, I'm going to support whoever wins the primary, and then he loses and he doesn't. What happens to him? Nothing. There's no mechanism for enforcing that pledge. Now, voters may choose to not vote for that person in some future election. There may be a political cost, but that's it. There's no state sanction like there is in the Washington case of Guerra, where the guy was fined $1,000 for not doing what the statute said. Or here in the Colorado case, where Baca had his vote not counted and he was removed as an elector. That's entirely different than promising to do something where there's no ramifications to it. There's ramifications to what happened in Colorado and Washington. And this whole pledge thing brings to mind, say, a primary debate. You've got multiple candidates up on the stage for a party's nomination for something. Like right now, Colorado has about 10, I don't know, Democratic candidates who are running to win the Democratic nomination to take on the sitting incumbent Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner. And at one of these debates, if they're asked to raise their hand, you know, like they do on TV, if you pledge to support whoever wins the nomination, raise your hand. So they're making a pledge, right? They're all going to do it, right? Almost always. That pledge means nothing. Political pledges like that to vote a certain way are not enforceable. They're theater. So, the entire discussion about the validity of requiring a pledge, like in Guerra, the Washington State Court case, and here, where Blair didn't want to take the pledge, discussing the validity of requiring that pledge has nothing to do with the validity of a sanction for violating that pledge. Whether or not that can be enforced by the state is a separate question of whether or not a pledge can be required by a political party, which is what this U.S. Supreme Court case is talking about in 1952. Separate discussions. So the Washington State Supreme Court just this year said that $1,000 fine was enforceable because the pledge, as the U.S. Supreme Court decides in this Ray v. Blair case, was upheld. So the pledge requirement was upheld here. And the back of court, the Tenth Circuit, dealing with Colorado in episode 48, makes the important and critical distinction that I'm making here and the Supreme Court makes in Ray. And we'll get into that. Requiring a pledge has got nothing to do with a state sanction for violating that pledge. They're separate questions. So the U.S. Supreme Court quotes the Alabama state Supreme Court's decision that they are overturning because the Alabama state Supreme Court said Blair has to be allowed to run for elector, but the Alabama Supreme Court doesn't even want him to make the pledge or doesn't says they can't be required to make the pledge, whether or not it's enforceable. So the Alabama state Supreme Court said, we appreciate the argument that from time immemorial, the elector selected to vote in the college, the electoral college, have voted in accordance with the wishes of the party to which they belong. But in doing so, the the effective compulsion has been party loyalty. Get that? Loyalty, not government-forced sanction, which is what we're discussing in the 2019 cases. Government-enforced sanction. Alabama Supreme Court. That theory of party loyalty has generally been taken for granted so that the voting for a president and a vice president has been usually formal, a mere formality, but the 12th Amendment does not make it so. And if you remember the 12th Amendment modifies the electoral college process. So the electors vote separately for president and vice president. The 12th Amendment does not make that party loyalty a law. The Alabama Supreme Court goes on. The nominees of the party for president and vice president may have become disqualified. So whoever wins the popular vote but not the Electoral College vote. Whoever wins that may have become disqualified. That's what the Alabama Supreme Court is saying. Or the people that won the popular vote, but not the Electoral College vote. So the nominees may have become disqualified, like in the interim, or so offensive, not only to the electors, but their constituents also. They should be free to vote for another as contemplated by the 12th Amendment. That's what the Alabama Supreme Court said, and they're correct. That's the entire point of the constitutional process. And the U.S. Supreme Court here in Ray in a footnote. You got to read these footnotes. Footnote 10 here quotes the Alabama Supreme Court and then makes a comment about it, which is very important. Here's the language. The language of the federal constitution clearly shows that it was the intention of the framers of the federal constitution that the electors chosen for the several states would exercise their judgment and discretion in the performance of their duty in the election of the president and vice president, and in determining the individuals for whom they would cast the electoral votes of the states. History supports this interpretation without controversy, period. There's really not any dispute about that. That's what the Constitution meant. The electors get to vote their conscience. They get to use their discretion. Then, so the U.S. Supreme Court quotes that from the Alabama Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court says about that passage, on this review... The one that is before them, Ray versus Blair. The right to a place on the primary ballot only is what we're talking about. So the right to a place on a party ballot is all we're talking about. We're not disputing that history supports the interpretation without controversy that electors can vote their conscience. They're not even talking about that, and they say they're not talking about that. So this footnote is huge. The U.S. Supreme Court does not dispute that electors have authority to exercise their discretion. It's the U.S. Supreme Court, Ray v. Blair, 1952, that case is only about getting on a primary ballot, not the enforceability of that pledge. The U.S. Supreme Court, and I know having two Supreme Courts we're talking about here, the state of Alabama Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, it's important to be clear about which one we're talking about. So the U.S. Supreme Court quotes the dissenting Alabama Supreme Court justices who want to uphold the pledge, and they say, Not allowing the pledge is contrary to the traditional American political system. No, it is not. It is precisely the intended effect of the Electoral College, as explained in the Federalist Papers, Justice Story's commentaries, among others that we've discussed in these prior two episodes. So the U.S. Supreme Court says, We consider the argument that the Twelfth Amendment demands absolute freedom for the electors to vote his own choice uninhibited by pledge, They're considering that argument. It is true that the amendment says the elector shall vote by ballot, but it is also true that the amendment does not prohibit an elector's announcing his choice beforehand, pledging himself. That's true. You can say, hey, if you guys elect for me, this is what I'm going to do. So the 12th Amendment does not prohibit an elector from voluntarily announcing his choice beforehand, but that has got nothing to do with a requirement. A voluntary choice has nothing to do with a requirement about making that pledge beforehand. Then the U.S. Supreme Court makes an important point, and this is a critical passage. This is the point that the Tenth Circuit gets right in Baca and the Washington Supreme Court does not get in Guerra. Right here, the U.S. Supreme Court, quote, even if such promises of candidates for the Electoral College are legally unenforceable because violative of an assumed constitutional freedom of the elector under the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, to vote as he may choose in the Electoral College, it would not follow that the requirement of a pledge in the primary is unconstitutional. Okay, so there's no comment on enforceability of that pledge. Gareth's holding in Washington that this Ray case supports its decision that a pledge is unenforceable is completely misplaced. Gareth says it is enforceable. Ray is saying it's not, or at the very least, it may not be. If the U.S. Supreme Court says it may not be enforceable, for the Washington Supreme Court to say, well, that means it is enforceable, is absolutely wrong. Clearly and obviously wrong. And if you recall last week's discussion, the one dissenting state Supreme Court justice in Washington got it right. There can be no enforceable restriction on how an elector votes. The U.S. Supreme Court goes on to point out that it is discussing a party requirement for the Pledge of Loyalty. And that a prospective elector in the state of Alabama could run unaffiliated and completely avoid this pledge. So you can still be an elector without making this pledge if you don't want to be a Democrat or a Republican. I'm sure they both had the same requirement. So Alabama, the state, is not requiring all of its presidential electors to make a pledge to do something. They're only requiring the ones who wish to represent a major party to do so. And the U.S. Supreme Court has one-sentence conclusion. is clear on this. The U.S. Supreme Court says we conclude that the 12th Amendment does not bar a political party from requiring the pledge to support the nominees of the National Convention. All right. So this case is about a political party requirement to make a pledge based on party loyalty. It is not about a state requirement applicable to all of its presidential electors and enforceable by the state. It's about party requirements not state requirements. And it's about a requirement to make a pledge, not a requirement that if you don't do what you're told, you will be sanctioned and your vote won't count. So what Colorado did to Baca at the state level, when he was removed from his duly elected position and his vote wasn't counted, that was unconstitutional. An unconstitutional limit on Baca's discretion as a presidential elector to vote for who he wished. And what Washington did to Guerra, contrary to that state Supreme Court, complete misreading of this U.S. Supreme Court case was likewise an unconstitutional limit on Gare's discretion as a presidential elector to vote within his discretion. $1,000 fine is not constitutional. Now, Washington State Supreme Court disagreed, but this Ray case, U.S. Supreme Court, that they relied upon doesn't support their conclusion. And the dissent here in this Ray case, written by Justice Jackson and joined by Douglas, is correct. Jackson says, no one faithful to our history can deny that the plan originally contemplated what is implicit in its text, that electors would be free agents to exercise an independent and nonpartisan judgment as to the men best qualified for the nation's highest offices. So the dissent makes a great point. No state law can legitimately require, like a U.S. senator, to vote a certain way in Congress, right? Both the U.S. senators and presidential electors are selected by states to carry out part of the federal government's purpose. So, the states can select them, they cannot direct them. A party might be able to, and the party can, require you to make a pledge to vote a certain way, but the only recourse for violating that pledge is political. Don't vote for him again, like George H.W.'s pledge, no new taxes. He violated that pledge, there was nothing anybody could do about it, except not vote for him again, which many people did not. He was a one-term president. So the dissent in this case even makes a rhyme, or makes reference to a rhyme. He writes, Electors, although often personally eminent, independent, and respectable, officially became voluntary party lackeys and intellectual non-entities to whose memory we might justly paraphrase a tuneful satire. They always voted at their party's call and never thought of thinking for themselves at all. Dissent sometimes use colorful language, and I appreciate it when they do. He says one more thing. As an institution, the Electoral College suffered atrophy, almost indistinguishable from rigor mortis. That's great. That's hilarious. It's a great line. He's stating that as a historical fact, however, not as a constitutional requirement. Constitution says the Electoral College should have life and not be dead. The dissent is saying that rigor mortis, be that it is may, cannot be institutionalized by state power. And get this, Jackson is not a fan of the Electoral College. Au contraire, he writes. To abolish it, the Electoral College, and substitute direct election of the president so that every vote, wherever cast, would have equal weight in calculating the result, would seem to me a gain for simplicity and integrity of our governmental processes. So he doesn't like the Electoral College, but he's applying the Constitution as written. What a crazy idea am I right? That kind of judicial integrity is what we need more of. So let's talk about this worst case scenario for 2020. Building on Ray versus Blair, 1952 case, the last significant U.S. Supreme Court case on the Electoral College. That combined with these 2019 cases with the 10th Circuit, 10th Circuit Federal Court of Appeals and the Washington State Supreme Court arrive at opposite results about electors' ability Authority to vote their conscience, use their discretion. We have to assume and hope that the U.S. Supreme Court will resolve that difference, those diametrically opposed positions before November of 2020. Just think, what could happen if one presidential candidate in 2020 wins the Electoral College by two votes, and just three electors wanted to exercise their judgment and vote the opposite way that their state voted, in the way that their state tells them they must vote. And three isn't that many. We had seven faithless electors in 2016. But there is a dispute about the legitimacy of these faithless electors, right? We could have two candidates in 2020 making a legit claim to the presidency. One saying, I won the electoral college based on the state laws requiring electors to vote with their state. The other one saying, no, I won because the electors have the constitutional authority to vote however they want So those votes are mine. They're not the other guys. And if there hasn't been a ruling on this before the election, and then the U.S. Supreme Court has to make a ruling after this result, how many might reject it as a purely political decision? We might have competing presidencies like we are in Venezuela or something, and it could get worse. So what if no decision is made prior to the 2020 election, and we get this close electoral college vote, And a number of Electoral College voters say, no, I'm not doing what my state tells me to do. So how do we count those votes? And the U.S. Supreme Court hasn't decided prior to this actually happening. What if one of the Supreme Court justices, one of the nine, passes away? And now we only have eight. And they come to a four-to-four conclusion. There's a tie. And there's no legitimate president to appoint the tiebreaker because they both have constitutional claims to be president. Are each competing president nominate someone favorable to his cause? And what does Congress do? Depending on who controls Congress, do they approve one of them and not approve the other one or ignore one and appoint the other one or approve of the other one? It could get really ugly. I mean, again, this isn't likely, but it's possible. It's very possible. So hopefully the Supreme Court decides before any of that happens, decides before November of 2020. Of course, we'll be keeping an eye on it right here at the law. I am DK Williams, and this has been episode 50 of The Law, Ray versus Blair. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter at The Law DKW and Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. I'm available for speaking engagements, media appearances, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details. And until next week, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.